Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, Beth Dunn has stories about a couple of national political figures visiting the Cape this week, while I've got stories about controversies involving two local Outer Cape select boards. We're happy to have Weather Will back in the report this week, and he's got his exclusive WOMR weekend weather outlook. And Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about the practical wisdom of garlic. It's that time of year when it seems like everybody wants to be on Cape Cod. Senator Elizabeth Warren is apparently no exception, as she visited Capabilities on Mary Dunn Road in Hyannis this week. Capabilities, a nonprofit that serves individuals with disabilities, is headquartered in Hyannis, has a program center in Falmouth, Capabilities Farm in Dennis, and Capabilities Thrift in West Yarmouth. On Monday morning, Warren visited the Hyannis facility and day programs to discuss how federal funding can support the nonprofit's work to give people with disabilities vocational training to help them become financially independent. President and CEO Kim McElholm said that money from the American Rescue Plan Act helped the organization get three new vehicles to add to their fleet of transportation. That helps bring individuals to and from the facility and other locations during the day. Federal support also strengthens their work on Capabilities Farm, with grants helping the organization distribute 2,200 food boxes through the community-supported agriculture program. McElholm said that Capabilities would like to do much more and just submitted a grant to make their fleet of vehicles electric. As was the case when Massachusetts Secretary of Health and Human Services Kate Walsh visited Provincetown at the end of June, An urgent workforce crunch and the housing crisis took center stage. McElholm said the organization has a 30% vacancy rate, meaning there are 270 staff members when there should be 310. Meanwhile, a staff member told State Senator Julian Sear during the tour that they stood to lose their housing this week. Sear said organizations like Capabilities are beginning to think about building housing for their staff in order to be able to continue to provide services to the community. Warren said the state needs all types of housing, from housing for seniors to those with disabilities to low-income people and first-time homebuyers. She said the federal government can provide dollars, but people on Cape Cod have to decide what's needed on Cape Cod. While she was here, Senator Warren also addressed the $4 billion needed to replace the aging Sagamore and Bourne bridges. Warren said that she, Senator Markey, and Congressman Keating were pursuing two different approaches. One is for the state to put in competitive bids for the next round of grants, while the other is to get some direct money in the budget from the federal government, not by competition, but just money in the budget to help support the bridges. 
Senator Warren isn't the only high-profile member of the political class on Cape Cod this week. First Lady Jill Biden is in Provincetown today to attend a fundraising reception at the home of Brian Raffanelli and his husband Mark Walsh. Alex Ritchie is also a co-host of the event. Dr. Biden will give a talk to the guests, some of whom paid as much as $50,000 for the privilege. Donations of $3,300 or more include a photo with Biden. Raffanelli is no stranger to political campaign fundraisers and has hosted politicians like former President Bill Clinton and current United States Secretary of Transportation Peter Buttigieg in the past. Walsh, who is a senior vice president at Amalgamated Bank, was previously the deputy chief of protocol during the Obama administration when he served then-Vice President Joe Biden and traveled with him and his family. Raffanelli said the Lawn Party, which will be co-hosted by Walsh and Ritchie's partner, Marty Davis, is an old-fashioned way to support political candidates. The two couples have partnered to plan political receptions before and will host upcoming events for Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey and U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. Raffanelli and Ritchie also teamed up on a fundraiser in Provincetown for Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton at the height of the 2016 election campaign. That event, which drew more than 1,000 people to attend at the Pilgrim Monument, raised more than $1.5 million. Cher also spoke at that fundraiser. The independent nonprofit cinema Chatham Orpheum Theater celebrates its 10th anniversary next week, and free popcorn will be available for all, along with other surprises to mark the milestone. Although a cinema opened at the location more than a century ago, commercial films had disappeared from downtown Chatham for more than 20 years, until a grassroots movement rallied behind the idea of bringing movies back to Main Street. The Orpheum originally opened in 1916. In the late 1980s, the corporation that owned the theater built a multiplex in East Harwich and sold off the individual downtown theaters. That deal included a deed restriction prohibiting the showing of theatrical films in the building for 20 years. The new owner restored the theater's old stage and ran it as a live venue for several years. But that wasn't sustainable, and the theater was closed, the interior gutted and divided into three retail spaces, with a CVS facing Main Street and two shops on the lower level. When CVS's lease ran out in 2011, the company built a new store down the road, and the deed restriction preventing the screening of theatrical films had run out. The multiplex in East Harwich had closed and been converted to house the Cape Cod Lighthouse Charter School. So the stage was set for the return of the Chatham Orpheum Theater. In April 2012, the nonprofit Chatham Orpheum Theater, Inc. purchased the property for $1.3 million. It took a considerable amount of work and money to convert the former retail space back into a movie theater. A sizable appropriation from the town's Community Preservation Fund helped, and a Massachusetts Cultural Council grant further boosted renovation efforts. On July 26, 2013, the Chatham Orpheum Theater opened its doors to the public with a sold-out showing of the film The Way, Way Back. 
The community has continued to support the theater as it hosts special events, screenings to help local nonprofit organizations, and movies that have become identified with the Orpheum, including Jaws and The Finest Hours. The board is developing a fundraising campaign to build an endowment for the future and upgrade the theater's technology. The campaign is likely to launch this winter. In the meantime, Orpheum patrons can look forward to more of what's made the theater so popular during its first decade. The Cape Cod Pride Festival is set to take over the Hyannis Village Green this Saturday. This year, the festival will honor Stonewall Uprising survivors and husbands Charles Evans and Paul Glass with an award for their work and commitment to the LGBTQ community on Cape Cod. Evans is also one of the founding members of Cape Cod Pride. Pam Washburn, president of Cape Cod Pride, said the couple needs to be recognized for their work within our own community, in addition to what they've done in Boston and New York. The pair, now Falmouth retirees, have always been prominent figures in the LGBTQ community on Cape Cod and beyond. Evans helped found Cape Cod Pride, and he and Glass were also founding members of LGBTQ Elders of Color, a Boston-based organization working to bring attention to older LGBTQ plus people of color. Glass currently serves as the organization's president. The festival runs from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the Hyannis Village Green. The celebration will be kicked off by Provincetown town crier Daniel Gomez Yata, and former WOMR DJ Lady Di will be the mistress of ceremonies. Speakers for this year's festival include the honoree, Charles Evans, State Senator Julian Sear, U.S. Representative William Keating, and Scott Fitzmorris, Executive Director of We Thrive. Familiar faces such as Zoe Lewis and Out Late with Diana will provide live entertainment, along with Cape Cod rock band Club Nineball. As for the decision to hold the festival in July, Washburn said she wanted to ensure that everyone could go to all the celebrations they wanted to during Pride Month in June. And really, why can't you have Pride every day? For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. In an executive session on June 28th, the Truro Select Board voted 4-1 to one to extend Town Manager Darren Tangerman's contract, with Sue Arison voting no. Two weeks later, the Board met in a public work session to discuss their evaluations of Tangerman's performance. Board members had scored Tangerman in eight categories, with a maximum possible score of 93. Their scores varied widely. Arison gave him a 28. Stephanie Rain gave Tangerman a 61. Bob Weinstein scored his performance at 69. And John Dundas gave him an 82. Chair Kristen Reed gave Tangerman a 64. The average was 60.8 in the good, exceeds expectations range of the formula. Each member completed the evaluation form and met individually with Tangerman, who had completed the same form, reviewing his own performance. Uh, 
Board members agreed that communication was a shortcoming in Tangerman's performance. Four of them gave him aggregate communication scores between 6 and 9 out of 12. Arison gave Tangerman a 0. In the subcategory of integrity, four members gave Tangerman a 9 out of 9, while Arison gave him a 6. Moving forward, the board laid out nine goals for Tangerman to improve outreach and communications with the town. They include holding weekly community office hours, attending senior luncheons, and conducting at least two meetings with the Truro Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association to solicit feedback and ideas on community matters. The board also discussed ways to combat the spread of misinformation. Weinstein said that the recent campaign urging the board not to renew Tangerman's contract was proof of a public, almost across the board, misunderstanding of what the manager's job actually is. Weinstein suggested a public information session to clarify the roles of different parts of town government. It's tentatively scheduled for Tuesday, August 8th. Arison agreed that he's been blamed for things that are not his responsibility, such as the budget, which falls squarely on the select board and town meeting. Reed mentioned the investigation that will take place regarding Arison's alleged unauthorized discussions with town employees about Tangerman's performance. Reed said that she hopes that select board members understand how the charter works and what the role of the board is, and how members can work together. In Wellfleet, the select board replaced Ryan Curley with Barbara Carboni in the chair's seat at its July 18th meeting, apparently bringing to a conclusion a conflict between Curley and the rest of the board that remains unexplained. The move to unseat Curley came into public view during the board's July 11th meeting, when member Kathleen Bacon read a statement during the public comment period asserting that Curley had tried to stop multiple attempts to reorganize the board. Bacon said that a reorganization of the board as soon as possible is in the best interests of the town. The origin of the turmoil, however, is unclear. According to several board members, it was the subject of an executive session held on June 27th Executive sessions are exceptions to the state's open meeting law and are closed to the public and press. According to the agenda, the June 27th session was held to hear complaints against a public official or employee. Two days later, on June 29th, board member Michael DeVasto submitted a formal request that reorganization of the board be added to the July 11th meeting agenda. He said that a week later, Bacon made the same request. Because they're not authorized to discuss what happened at an executive session, board members declined to elaborate on their reasons for wanting a new chair. However, Curley told The Independent that the conflict was about differences of opinions regarding town administrator Rich Waldo. Waldo declined to comment, citing the confidential nature of the subject. On July 11th, reorganization of the board was not on its agenda. During that meeting, a motion made by DeVasto to place reorganization on the board's next meeting agenda quickly devolved into a screaming match between DeVasto and Curley. In the end, the board voted 4-1 to one to place reorganization on the July 13th agenda, with Curley dissenting. 
but reorganization was not on the agenda on July 13th either. During the public comments portion of the July 13th meeting, DeVasto accused Curley of taking the item off the agenda, which Curley denied. Waldo said that the item did not make it onto the agenda in the first place. With Bacon absent from that meeting, the board agreed to move the reorganization vote to July 18th. Despite Curley's seeming reluctance to give up the chair, he voted with the rest of the board to elect Carboni chair on July 18th. Curley had been chair of the board for two years. He was re-elected chair on May 2nd by a 4-to-1 vote with DeVasto opposed. He was re-elected to serve another three-year term on the board at May's annual town election. David and Carolyn Del Gizzi own a large number of year-round rental properties on the Outer Cape, including eight in East Ham. They have a history of ignoring the rules and leaving both tenants and local officials facing substandard conditions in their buildings. They also have a history of not paying their property taxes. The Del Gizzi's, who live in Weston, are the same couple who own the Truro Motor Inn, where the housing court on July 6 evicted the last of the tenants after a years-long battle between the landlords and Truro officials over health and safety code violations. The eight properties in East Ham appear to be in various stages of disrepair. A recent drive-by showed one building has a hole in the roof. In 2020, East Ham officials took possession of two Del Gizzi-owned condominiums on Route 6 for non-payment of taxes. Since then, the challenge for the town has been that each of those condos is housed in a duplex with the adjoining units still owned by the Del Gizzi's. Town Administrator Jackie Beebe told The Independent that it's a struggle to bring the buildings up to code when the town only owns half of each building. Meanwhile, the town continues to grapple with violations at the remaining properties owned by the Del Gizzi's. The tenants living in the rental units could report the violations to local officials or withhold their rent money and use it to make the repairs, but they fear likely retaliation. The town is cautious to prosecute serious housing violations for fear of making families homeless. Beebe said landlords take advantage of the situation and continue to collect high rents for substandard units, not fix or repair anything, and leave folks in unsafe conditions. What happened at the Truro Motor Inn demonstrates how ineffective the courts can be. In the Truro case, the Del Gizzi's were subject to a series of court orders and simply ignored them. State law sets minimum standards related to fitness for habitation that must be met by all property owners. For rental properties, the state requires landlords to register their properties with the town. All landlords must have rental certificates, but the Del Gizzi's have not obtained them for any of their properties. Beebe said the town plans to pursue enforcement of the certificate requirement this fall. According to East Ham's treasurer-collector Maya Golding, the Del Gizzi's haven't paid any of the property taxes they owe for this year. Golding will start the tax lien process on properties with taxes owed in the fall. If the taxes remain unpaid, a lien will be put on the deed at the Barnstable County Registry. Amounts that are in tax title accrue interest at a rate of 16%.
The Outermost Music Festival, planned for Nauset Beach in October, is getting closer to becoming a reality. More details about the festival were shared with the Orleans Select Board last week, including plans for security, parking, and staffing. The discussion culminated with the board's unanimous vote to issue a beer and wine license for the festival, which is scheduled for October 7th, with a rain date of October 8th. The concert was held in 2018 and 19 as the Cape Cod Roots and Blues Festival, but was discontinued the following year due to COVID. Organizers, including Hog Island Beer and the nonprofit Friends of Nauset Beach, announced earlier this summer plans to bring the concert back this fall. Select Board member Andrea Reed raised concerns last month about whether the police, fire, and public works departments have the staffing necessary to pull off the festival, which in past years drew between five and 6,000 people. Town officials participated in a walk of the proposed concert site at the end of June, and it was determined that the resources will be available to hold the concert. Organizers are planning a scaled-down version of the festival that will accommodate between 600 and 1,000 people. The festival was met with great fanfare in its first incarnation, and select board members expressed enthusiasm for its return in October. Reed added that if it's successful this year, the festival could turn into a shoulder-season staple for Orleans and the Lower and Outer Cape. That's the hope of organizers as well. A lineup for October's event is expected to be announced in the next few weeks. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. After a brief break in our seemingly endless stretch of oppressive humidity yesterday, the muggies are back courtesy of a vigorous area of low pressure over the eastern Great Lakes. As the surface front moves eastward, look for scattered showers and thunderstorms tonight and Saturday. By Sunday, a more zonal flow will develop, bringing a lot of sunshine, a bit less humidity, and an overall great summer day. Fair weather lingers into next week, but with humidity increasing, a chance of showers or thunderstorms should return in the Tuesday or Wednesday timeframe. But if next week is your vacation week, you may possibly have picked the best weather week of the summer so far. In the longer term, the zonal flow will once again morph into what's been the common theme over the last several months a strong trough of low pressure over the Great Lakes, which will bring better chances of showers and thunderstorms to the Outer Cape. And as we head into August, our global models are hinting at midsummer heat and humidity for much of the country, but a persistent trough in the east may still block the core of that heat from moving into New England. Elsewhere across the nation, you don't need me to tell you how crazy and unprecedented it's been over the last couple of weeks. From all-time record heat in the Southwest, where over 2,300 records have been shattered, to triple-digit heat indices for over 40 days across parts of the Deep South and Florida, to widespread and catastrophic flooding from New England to the Mid-Atlantic to the Ohio and Tennessee Valleys. 
including an all-time 24-hour total of one foot of rain in western Kentucky. The culprits are a huge and unusually strong upper-level high over the southwest, which continues to expand, combined with a sagging jet stream over the eastern half of the U.S. The battle of the air masses between the heat dome and the trough continues to produce incredible atmospheric dynamics, and they're capable of torrential rains and severe storms targeting the central and eastern U.S. And if this weren't enough, we'll still be dealing with the massive Canadian wildfires as the jet stream continues to bring the smoke from these fires into the lower 48 for the next several weeks. And finally, Colorado State University has updated their hurricane forecast, now calling for an above-average season, citing the incredibly hot oceanic waters of the Atlantic and noting the water temperatures will supersede any wind shear caused by El Nino. In fact, some of the buoys off the Florida Keys are reporting ocean temperatures in the mid to upper 90s. Given the current upper-level setup, any tropical system that develops has the potential to impact the islands of the Caribbean, Florida, and the Gulf of Mexico. In fact, Colorado State University forecasters say the odds of a U.S. landfall this hurricane season will be greater than the long-term average. This is still historically the quietest period of the season and a good time to prepare and have that plan in place. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, partly to mostly cloudy and humid with areas of fog, highs around 78. Tonight, humid with scattered showers and thunderstorms, along with areas of dense fog, lows around 70. Saturday, areas of dense morning fog, otherwise partly sunny, continued humid with widely scattered showers and thunderstorms, highs around 82. Sunday, the pick of the weekend, abundant sunshine and warm, but not as humid, highs around 85. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. I wonder, do you ever get certain inklings about a person that make you wonder about them? Inklings that create a kind of suspicion as if you're witnessing a part of their character that you hadn't suspected. For instance, if a person should mention their fondness for Richard Nixon, I know I would wonder, were they fond of the Richard Nixon who signed the Environmental Protection Act or the one who propped up the Pinochet regime in Chile? There are lots of little clues about a person that you pick up over time, but what if they told you they hated garlic? I know that for me, I'd immediately start wondering about them. Yes, yes, they could be allergic. Garlic allergies can be serious for sure, but they are also quite rare. All this came to me as I was harvesting my garlic this week, a very disappointing haul, which served to underscore what garlic means to me and why I think garlic is somehow more than a vegetable. It's a symbol. Because it's an effective method of warding off bacteria, garlic has been seen throughout history as a potent image of protection, a defense against 
everything from sickness and poison to a safeguard against the supernatural, most famously vampires, because they were thought to suffer from a disease of the blood. The ancient Greeks used garlic to ward off evil spirits, and the Romans recommended it as a defense against snakes and scorpions. In China, garlic is a good luck symbol and is often gifted to expectant parents. In the Jewish Talmud, it's mentioned as an aphrodisiac, and I know my wife would add, but only if both partners eat it. For me, garlic has always been emblematic of immigrant cooking, associated with cultures that, when I was a child, were represented by an aisle in the supermarket with a big sign that said, Ethnic Foods. Throughout my lifetime, the people who have made jokes about garlic, about its strong flavor and aroma, about the shabby clothing and smelly houses of the people who cooked it, have mostly been uptight snobs. Would it surprise you to know that no member of the British royal family was allowed to eat garlic and onions around Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth? Reportedly, she had such a dislike for garlic that it was prohibited in Buckingham Palace, which strikes me as odd because despite its Asian origins, the name garlic derived from Anglo-Saxon speech, gar for spear, referring to the shape of its leaves, and lack for plant. We plant our garlic in mid-October. Usually on the weekend, I spend hiding from the crowds of Oysterfest and harvest it a few weeks after the 4th of July. Although we give away a lot of vegetables, we never give away garlic. I'm one of those people who believes that when a recipe calls for garlic, you should always add more. Have you ever made James Beard's famous recipe, Chicken with 40 Cloves of Garlic? I think it's really good, if you use 80 cloves. Like squash blossoms and beet greens, one of the best things about garlic is repurposing the parts that often get thrown away. Those long, green, snaky-looking things with blossoms that look like the heads of geese, they're called scapes. We grind them up with oil and cheese and pine nuts to make the season's very best pesto. Garlic has other uses besides food. Glue is one. I'm not kidding. Last week, I peeled the stamp off an unmailed letter, crushed a clove of garlic between my fingers until they were coated with a sticky paste, then used the paste to attach the stamp to a new envelope. My grandmother used to use a sliced clove of garlic on my acne pimples. And consider this. I have friends who are Republicans, friends who avoid cats, friends who root against the patriots, but not one friend, to my knowledge, who hates garlic, which points to garlic's most important characteristic. Garlic can be a reliable judge of character. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. Thank you. 
And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio. WOMR.